take your copy of God's Word and look to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This morning we will try and cover the first eight verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is Genuine. We'll stop there for this morning. Now, by the time the Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, many, if not most, of the members of the Jerusalem church were suffering financial hardship. They were poor. It didn't start that way. I know we're preaching through the book of Acts right now. You may recall, we've already learned in the book of Acts that the church in Jerusalem initially had no need among the membership. In fact, Luke writes in Acts 2, all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as many as had need. He repeats the same thing in chapter 4 and he adds that there was not a needy person among them. But that was not to continue persecution against the church, as we've just heard, ironically, persecution against the church began early on among the saints in Jerusalem. Stephen dying as the first Christian martyr in Acts 7. Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, was obviously involved in that persecution early on. But he was more the arm of the persecutors. The effort to eradicate Christianity was much larger than just one man. This persecution in Jerusalem by the Jews to their own believing Jewish brothers coupled with famine in that area, affected the saints in Jerusalem in a major way, so they were in dire need. We get a glimpse in Acts 11 of the first time that monetary aid is sent from the Gentile church in Antioch to the saints in Jerusalem. There Luke writes this, Acts eleven twenty nine. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it, by, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. As Paul 
recounts the Jerusalem council that we find in Acts 15, but he recounts it in Galatians chapter 2. He adds that those in Jerusalem, the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So I think you can see that this Gentile relief effort for the Jewish Christians began early on. So along with Paul's missionary efforts, Paul spearheaded this collection. So I think when you think of the Apostle Paul, in addition to his office of apostle, his, his mission as church planter, you probably should also think of him as a relief worker because we see that as a major part of what he was doing along with his missionary endeavors. Now, the church in Corinth had initially pledged to help with this effort. In fact, we know that from 1 Corinthians, which we just studied. In 1 Corinthians 16, here's what Paul wrote to them. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, and he means the saints in Jerusalem. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, I will... Or, or, or uh, they will accompany me, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. This was not a command in 1 Corinthians 16 by Paul. This was instructions how to have the collections ready when Paul arrived. They had already pledged to give this money to the poor saints in Jerusalem. But something stalled their collection effort. And I think we can rather fairly conclude that it was this strained relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Not to mention, it appears that false teachers in Corinth had accused Paul of skimming off the top of the collection and lining his pockets with money intended to be carried back to Jerusalem. Paul's already had a, de- a defensive posture. He said earlier in chapter 7, verse 2, we have taken advantage of no one. Really, probably as literally as you can put it, we have exploited no one. Paul's saying, I haven't robbed anyone of anything. I have been honest in this endeavor. Paul will declare his innocence in this later on in this letter. We don't have time to get into that this morning. So anyway, whatever the reason may be, the collection at Corinth had stalled. And so in chapters 8 and 9, two chapters, Paul addresses this pledge that they had promised to give to the poor saints there in Jerusalem. This passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, contains the Bible's longest text on the attitude of Christian giving. So this is the time that you want to reach over and grab your seatbelt and you want to buckle it in because it's going to be a rough go over the next two chapters. This is the sermon no pastor likes to preach unless he's in the prosperity movement. (laughs) He likes this and he's going to rip it out of context anyway so it doesn't matter. And this is the one that no American Christian really wants to hear. But it's here. And so 
We need this. Gary Miller actually describes these two chapters as, quote, the longest, most rigorous, most sustained treatment of a gospel-shaped attitude to money in the entire Bible, end quote. Look, if you're a believer, there is no way you aren't challenged by these two chapters. I know because I've been challenged as I've began looking at this, and I'm sure will be as we work through it. Now, for you note-takers here, I know there's several of you, one of which I'm married to, so I'm going to give this information. Chapter 8 marks the beginning of the second section of this letter. I told you in the introduction to 2 Corinthians, chapters 1 through 7 is an overview of Christian ministry, specifically Paul's own ministry as an apostle. We've completed that section. Chapter 8 and 9 readdress the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now Paul actually began transitioning into this topic though at the end of chapter 7. Look, remember when he said Titus, whom Paul was going to send back to collect the money, Titus remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, Paul says, because I have complete confidence in you. So Titus boasted of their obedience to Paul. And then Paul says he had complete confidence in them. So you can see how this is rather smoothly transitioning into this collection effort that Paul was going to talk about in chapters 8 and 9 as Paul urges them to follow through with their initial promise to send relief to the poor. The title of my sermon this morning is Christian Philanthropy. And in this text, Paul urges this more affluent church in Corinth to follow through with by using an example of a poverty-stricken church or churches in Macedonia. He wants them to send help to the poor saints in Jerusalem. You'll see what I mean as we move through it. So he begins here in chapter 8, verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers. So this is something they didn't know. I actually don't know who was privy to this information. But Paul knew, and so he shares it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul begins his appeal for the Corinthians to continue their pledge that they had promised by offering them this powerful example of sacrificial giving from the churches of Macedonia. He begins by referring to this gift from the Macedonian churches as saying that it is the grace of God that has been given to these churches. These churches most likely are churches we're familiar with, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. We can study about those churches in Acts. We actually possess three divinely inspired letters to two of these churches, Thessalonica and Philippi, of course, in the New Testament. Anyway, referring to their gift, 
Their wealth of generosity, Paul calls it here, he designates the grace of God as the root cause of their willingness to give. Now that, that at least implies, and I think this text is going to bear this out, that when God saves a soul, when the Holy Spirit takes up His abode in a person, there is this supernatural desire to help your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Kent Hughes writes, quote, Authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. End quote. That's true. You cannot serve God and money. Our Lord, who died for our sins, said that. And so I think... Brother Hughes is on to something when he says authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. It is just one of the results of the grace of God, according to Paul here. Moyer Hubbard refers to this gift by these saints in Macedonia as, quote, a spiritual disposition that has resulted in extraordinary liberality, end quote. That's true. That's precisely what Paul's talking about. And what made their willingness to donate to the Jerusalem cause even more amazing is they didn't have anything. They were poor. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were in the middle of a severe test of affliction, most likely referring to heavy persecution. They were pressed in on all sides. We know these churches experienced persecution because the Apostle Paul talked about it in those letters that he wrote to them. To the Thessalonian church, he wrote, You received the word in much affliction. He went on to say, You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as the churches of Judea did from the Jews. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6 and verses 2, 14. To the saints in Philippi, Paul wrote, quote, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Philippians 1.29 So we know these churches were in fact in a severe test of affliction. That's not all Paul says though. Notice, he, he says they were experiencing extreme poverty. This is something we will struggle to relate to. Because none of us have experienced extreme poverty. Look, poverty in the Greco-Roman world was common apart from the Christian faith. Apart from persecution. The general populace was often poor. There was no such thing as a middle class in the Roman Empire. About 12% of people in that day could be labeled as either elite or successful. That left 88% which either lived at the poverty level or below. Look, the majority of these people were probably poor before they were converted to Jesus. 
And now they were in the midst of persecution that had done nothing but exacerbate their financial state. Almost every commentator that I read this week said the best modern equivalent to what the ESV here renders extreme poverty, the best modern equivalent is they were dirt poor. Literally. John MacArthur describes their economic situation as rock bottom. We just can't comprehend it. I I can't, at least. I've never wanted for one meal as far as I know. But joy is not found in money. These people are joyful. Now the prosperity gospel movement seems to have completely missed that idea. They're certainly not preaching it to their people. Of course, that would hurt their own financial portfolio (laughs) if they did. But look, true Christian joy is found in the gospel, in Jesus. And Paul says that these dirt poor saints possessed an abundance of joy. It's really difficult for Americans to relate to this. I mean, we often equate God's monetary blessings to us, our our material prosperity as as joy and success and and a measure of spiritual health. But that's wrong. We shouldn't judge our spiritual health based on our financial situation. These people were very healthy spiritually and they were dirt poor. Anyway, notice this. Despite the Macedonians' economic status, despite the fact that they were at rock bottom, this joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave. You talk about a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is it. Right here. There is no way anybody could look at these people and not see something supernatural was going on inside of these people right here. They had nothing. Most likely living below the poverty level. Hand to mouth, we might say. And yet, here they were sending an offering to poor people in Jerusalem. Listen, we think we're suffering when the milkshake machine at McDonald's isn't working. These believers in Macedonia quite literally put us to shame. And maybe, maybe we need to be shamed. That's what Paul's doing to the saints in Corinth by telling them about this. Maybe we need to hear this too. Well, if that's not enough, let's just move on. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul says they gave according to their means. I mean, it's quite unlikely they gave some enormous offering that would have been noticed by onlookers. They didn't have it. They might would have given it if they had it, but they simply did not have it. I seriously doubt they gave as much as other churches gave. 
But what they did give was according to their means, and for them it was quite a sacrifice. Paul goes on to say they actually gave beyond their means. Far more than anyone would think, considering they were at rock bottom. Considering they were dirt poor. In fact, the Greek preposition para that the ESV here translates beyond literally means contrary to. In other words, they gave contrary to their means. Considering their financial ability, they outgave anything reasonably expected from them. They looked like they couldn't give anything at all. They gave anyway. Contrary to their means. H.A. Ironside said, quote, these people gave until they felt it, end quote. Amen. And this is important, by the way, especially in our day. They were not coerced into giving. Like so many charlatans out there today do to poor, naive, believing people promising some tenfold return. That's not what happened here. Paul says they donated to this relief effort of their own accord. And it almost sounds like Paul initially opposed them giving such a robust offering because he knew it was going to result in a financial hardship on their part. But they pressed him. They begged to be part of this collection, greatly desiring to be a relief to the saints there in Jerusalem. Look, as Gentile churches, they surely understood their their indebtedness to the Jews as God brought Jesus into the world through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we are blessed because of that. It was clear that these people had been made new creations in Christ Jesus. It really speaks volumes for their faith here. But why? Why would they do this? I mean, what is the driving motivation for dirt poor believers? What would make them send money they needed for their own selves? What would make them send money to help believers of a different ethnicity hundreds of miles away and an ethnicity with which they had had all types of problems and conflict throughout the centuries. What in the world would cause this? Paul answers, look, they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then by the will of God to us. Look, guys, and this is, this is challenging. If we have given ourselves to God, we will have a generous spirit especially to those in need. Listen, I I am not trying to guilt you. I have had to face this text all week myself. And I've been challenged. But it's right here in black and white. If we have no desire whatsoever to help fellow Christians facing hardships, something is desperately wrong. These poor saints were committed to God and that commitment to God led them to want to help Paul and his relief effort to Jerusalem. There is no other way to read these words. This this information about the saints in Macedonia is shared by Paul 
with the church in Corinth really to shame them into carrying out their own promise because they weren't nearly as poor as the saints in Macedonia. So Paul says in verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So, so Paul has shamed them, sharing with them this example of the Macedonian saints helping. Now he turns back to the Corinthian church, saints living in a much more prosperous area. We discussed that in the introduction of the book, why Corinth was such a prosperous city. You know, it was on this crossroads and everything. These believers had more financial stability. I'm not suggesting they're in the top 12%, all of them. That's not what I'm saying. But they had more financial stability than the saints that were poor, dirt poor in Macedonia. And so they had more capability to help the poor in Jerusalem. Now, remember, in all likelihood, Timothy, not Titus, delivered 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Titus most likely delivered the severe letter that we've talked about a number of times, that letter written in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So Titus probably began reorganizing this fledgling collection when he was there recently. He's now reporting to Paul you know, about what's going on there since that time. And Paul apparently plans to send Titus back to Corinth to complete this collection. For what it's worth, if you're just wondering, it does seem that the church in Corinth finally did send money. Paul, later on, writing to the churches in Rome, chapter 15 of Romans, verse 26, says, For Macedonia and Achaia, that was a larger area, probably including Corinth there, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So it does seem like they finally did carry forth with this. But we aren't there yet in 2 Corinthians. That's future that we get that information. Paul, by the way, goes on in Romans to say of those churches, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be a service to them in material blessings. That's what I was saying earlier. We've been blessed through them. They had been blessed through them. They realized it, and so that's why they sent the money. Now, get this, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Some think this is a little tongue-in-cheek from Paul. He's just bragging on them almost in a way that's not true. But I don't think that is the case. A study of 1 Corinthians shows that this church was extraordinarily blessed with spiritual gifts. They were abusing them, yes. But they had spiritual gifts. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul said to this same church, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul seems to be the say, saying the same thing here. Look, this church had a lot of problems. They had a lot of infighting. They had a lot of false teaching, apparently, that was rising up. They had a lot of moral issues. But one thing they were not lacking in 
was spiritual gifting. They had a robust faith, Paul says. They knew how to enunciate the truth. They knew the truth. They were zealous for the truth. And even now, they had received this letter from Paul that has sparked them into wanting to contribute to the saints in Jerusalem again. That's what it's meant here when Paul talks about our love for you. The NIV actually renders it in the love we have kindled in you. In other words, by the sending of this letter, Paul has rekindled this desire for them to help these poor saints in Jerusalem. Here, as he addresses the church in Corinth then, he says, you have all of these gifts, faith, speech, knowledge, all earnestness, and in our love for you, you have all of these gifts. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Listen, Paul is saying in no uncertain terms that helping those in need with our money is an act of grace. It's expected as a supernatural result of our conversion to Christ. We are expected to help our fellow brothers and sisters especially. Look, if you are God's child... God expects you to reflect His character. And He is a giving God. I'm hesitant to even quote verse 9. I don't need to chase a rabbit. But I want you to look at it. Verse 9. This is is Paul's really heavy, I gotcha, you better listen, here's why you ought to give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that that you by His poverty might become rich. Now, He he is not talking about your bank account or your your home or your car. That's not what He means. He means rich in spiritual gifts, the greatest of which is peace with God through the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. Jesus is the greatest example of giving in the history of the world. And Paul uses the example of Jesus to say, give this way. Paul actually further describes how giving Jesus was in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what it says, Philippians 2, 6. Though He, that's Jesus, before He was born... That Jesus, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, a thing to to hold on to, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how giving our God... Is. No wonder Steve Lawson once said, quote, No one ever started so high and came so low as Jesus did in His incarnation. End quote. Amen. But He did it willingly. It wasn't forced on Him. You don't, you don't force God 
to do things. So as as the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, eternally co-equal with the Father, Jesus willingly became a slave in order to redeem slaves by dying in our place in the worst form of execution that mankind has ever dreamed up, crucifixion. That will preach, but that's going to have to preach next week. The point is clear though, God is generous, and so we are to be. That's, that's, that's Paul's obvious point. As God's children, we are expected to exhibit the same generous attitude towards those in need, especially believers. Okay, let's, let's look at verse 8. Paul said... I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So this is, this is not a command. This is not a command. Paul's leaving it up to their conscience. But don't misunderstand. Look what he says. To give to the saints in need, those in Jerusalem, would prove that your love is genuine. So Paul's not commanding them anything, but to refuse to give to those in need is concerning. Because to give is to prove that your love is genuine. Listen, guys, it doesn't say much for us if we have no desire to help those that are in need, especially believers. Something is desperately wrong if we have such a selfish attitude. Listen, greed and selfishness Selfishness and stinginess are attributed to the flesh, not the Holy Spirit. Remember James' question in James chapter 2? I'm sure you're familiar with it. Here's what James asks in James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Here's the illustration James uses to make his point. Next verse. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In in other words, down in Alabama, we'd say, I'll be praying for you. Without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James uses Christian generosity as a proof for saving faith or false faith. That's heavy. Listen, generosity, especially towards those of the household of faith, the believing community, Starting here with our own local church, but certainly extending out. Generosity is simply an expected attribute of a Spirit-filled disciple of Jesus Christ. A Spirit-filled child of God. And just so there's no confusion, if anybody's listening to this, there is no other kind of child of God. All children of God are Spirit-filled. So generosity is a part of your Christian service to God. Just like reading your Bible, or attending church, or praying, or living a moral life. You know, the generosity 
is just as much a part of your Christian service as all of those things are as well. Alright, let's sort of bring this to a bit of a conclusion. We all need to realize that our money is not our money. It's God's. Every blessing we have is, is God's. We're breathing God's air. We're eating God's food. We are being warmed by God's sun. We are walking around on God's dirt. And our money is not ours. You know, as Americans, we have the old Donna Summer attitude. She works hard for her money, you know. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you don't put effort into your job. I, I, I'm not saying that at all. But we are slaves of Jesus Christ. And slaves are not their own. And they don't own their own property. Now I'm thankful to have lived 50 years in a prosperous country. I, I am thankful. I promise you I am. But personally, I'm not speaking for any of you. Personally, I feel the effects of continued prosperity when I read a passage like this. Listen, we need to come to grips with the fact that whatever we have, it's already God's. And we need to use it in the way that He tells us to. Alright, let's close out with a few, few thoughts. I want to say this as plainly as I can possibly say it, first and foremost, so there is no confusion. Giving to the church, giving to those in need, whatever, another ministry, what, it does not guarantee you financial prosperity. That is a lie. Leaders in the prosperity movement have been selling that lie and getting rich off of it for decades. This, these saints in Macedonia and really all around the early churches are proof enough that such a message is a devious lie from Satan himself. Paul is not telling the Corinthian church here, and I'm not telling you, that if you give a dollar, it's going to be returned to you tenfold. That is the message of religious charlatans, hucksters, praying on the pockets of poor people. When you give you may very well feel it and never get a penny of it back in this life. Just like these saints in Macedonia. By the way, that's what the word sacrifice implies. That you feel it. For most of us though, our struggle is to help the needy in, even when we don't feel it. That's, that's our struggle. Okay, that's out of the way. No blessings attached to giving. Let's actually try to take our foot off your toes. But not before pressing a little harder first. I think the unbelieving world shames us sometimes in giving. The difference though is their giving is not for a noble purpose. I call Facebook as witness to that. Because when the unbelieving world gives, if social media is any, any indication, they do it oftentimes just to brag on themselves and show what they have done. I assure you, that is worth precisely nothing in God's eyes. But 
We as believers need to be known as givers if we want to rightly reflect our Heavenly Father. David Garland writes this, quote, Christians, like young children, need to grow out of their natural self-centeredness and learn to share with others, end quote. Amen. Amen. I've had growth in that area myself that I need to do, but I feel like I'm probably not the only one in the house this morning. God expects us to give as a result of His divine grace. And for the record, again, I am not talking about merely giving to your local church. God does expect that. I'm not saying He doesn't. But the gift in our text this morning is beyond that. It's above that. It's in addition to your regular offering. And though the wealthy should certainly give more, all believers should have a giving heart. Because God has given us the best from Himself to redeem our sin-stricken souls. It is significant that the only direct quote from Jesus' earthly ministry recorded outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relates to giving. You may not know that, but you find it in Acts chapter 20 as Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. Here's what Paul says. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said, here's the quote from Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. End quote. Now, Romans chapter 12, you may not remember it. It's been six years since we preached through Romans. But Romans chapter 12 actually describes a gift of generosity. This is something God has enabled some people to do. Some people have been blessed abundantly by God financially, and He certainly expects those to give more. But in this text, the Macedonians weren't that. We all need to look for ways to to give, to to help. And look, though most of ourselves view, view one another or view our own selves as struggling, it's only because we've been brainwashed in this world that we live in and in a fluent society. Most of us live way beyond the poverty level of the world. We may not live above America's poverty level very far, but if you look at the poverty level of the world, we are way beyond it. Most of us certainly could help our Christian brothers and sisters in need, if not with money, in some other way. Now let me offer this caveat. I think this is important too. Paul told the saints in Thessalonica, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's clear. We are not necessarily helping someone if we fund their laziness. If we fuel their unwillingness to work. Now we should absolutely be generous. And we should not always assume the worst. Which I think sometimes we do. Just as an excuse to get out of having... Christian generosity. But we still have to use discernment because if anyone is not willing to work, he shouldn't eat. All right, let me close with this. 
A commitment to follow Jesus is a commitment to love people. That includes your enemies. Jesus Himself said that. And as Paul closes his letter to the churches in Galatia, he writes this, quote, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith, end quote. That's exactly what we see here in this passage with the Macedonians and what Paul is calling on the church at Corinth to do. How much better would the world be if everyone in the world had the attitudes of the Macedonians right here in this text? While we, especially as Americans, and sadly, even as American believers, we often look for reasons not to help, the Macedonians looked for reasons to help. God has helped us, giving us far more than we can ever fathom. Let us return that to those around us, especially those in need. And in the sense of this text, biblically, we need to be Christian philanthropists. Stand with me if you will. Blake.